If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the jump. now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast we're continuing on january is almost over here this is our last show in the month of january so we're already into the next month of 2023 and the more that we go on the closer we hopefully get to shows from this year or some kind of announcement we're sitting here just excited for that but in the meantime This is what we're doing. We're just kind of rekindling some memories and talking about some shows from the past because they're fun to talk about. They're fun to break down. And today we get to actually tell a story from somebody that got to go to his first show at Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland back in 1996. So it's no code era. Always very good stuff. We'll talk a little bit about what this era was and we'll get to our interview with Brian in a little bit. But before we do all that, Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. 1996, we're back. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's always one of those years that, and, and I kind of posed the question of the day, I kind of posed out is, you know, what era would you want to go back to the most? And for me, I always thought that 96 was such an interesting year in that retrospect because it felt like the band was on a full, like, you know, do-it-yourself tour. It felt like 
since no code didn't really have the mainstream popularity that it was all like you know hardcore pearl jam fans that were going to these shows it was kind of in a weird way the kickoff to what the pearl jam lifestyle is now yeah they were playing some out of the way places still not using ticketmaster and you posed that question i saw that and i was thinking like Man, 94, be easy, 95, obviously, even like all the stuff that happened in 2000, you know, to go back and relive some of that stuff and to be there. But 96, I think, is maybe the one like to get Jack after having like a full year with the band, working some more stuff in and just getting all these early versions of no code stuff. God, it sounds so good. And they were starting to stretch out a little bit and they... It was just such a, yeah, such an interesting time. And this might be really high up on my list of years to go back to. Yeah, the whole Jack factor definitely adds into whenever we go back to 1995, 96, even a little bit in 98, like that is the key focus. That is the first thing that we mentioned when we get into the show and all that. It's just, a, a again, like a very unique time period for everybody. It's a unique one for the fans, you know, kind of evolving into, for a, a lot of people, especially Brian, who we're going to get to in a second, going to a show for the first time and really finding themselves within Pearl Jam, finding the the hardcore lifer, the 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 guy that in a couple of years on '98 or, or 2000 tour is going to start doing this a lot more and make a lifestyle out of it. So, and this is also the first year that they had consistent posters to every show or so. Well, not every single show, but most shows had one. And there is a poster story that comes out of this that uh, I'll let Brian kind of tell when when we get to the interview, but. But yeah, it's a very interesting year. It feels like it's kind of in the middle of everything. And also like everybody is maturing in the band. It feels like musically they found like a new barrier to jump over and they kind of put themselves to the test on no code and saw themselves become better musicians out of it. And they didn't become complacent out of that. And I think that's a huge factor when it comes into 1996 because, you know, they could have easily just played more songs like Verses or 10 and people would have been up for that. But yeah, there was no chance that they were ever going to do that with who they were and the kind of musicians and artists they take pride in being. So it's a good year. Looking back, maybe some people might not even think this. Give everybody an era. They might not say 1996 first they'll say like 1992 or 1995 or they'll even go a little bit deeper to 2003 or something like that but 1996 is always a sneaky great one why don't we get into that interview with brian that we did he's a patron and he requested this episode right when he joined patreon so we've had it on the shelf for a little bit but happy of course every year we do this in the beginning of the year we're just catching up on patreon submissions but what's great about this one this year is that we did get to talk to brian for a little bit more we're going to play you a little piece from our interview and then if you guys want you can go and check it out it's going to be on patreon the full half hour 35 minutes or so that we did on that so why don't we get to brian let's talk about you know being the first show and sort of the sights and sounds and and anticipation it's a tale as old as time Probably a few days in advance, the anticipation really got like obviously going and getting the tickets was amazing. And I felt I was like, I was holding my ticket in my hand 
And I also looked up what I was like, I think the ticket had like a weird, it was like maroon and it had a globe on it or something like that. And also the yeah. cool thing about it at the, on the one edge, they printed your actual name. So like, this was my ticket, you know, at, at the time that was like state of the art security. But as for like the anticipation for the show and getting there, yeah, we hopped in, you know, someone's car. I don't remember. I wasn't driving. I don't remember who was driving, you know, had road sodas and everything like idiots do. And uh, I think the drive from like South Central Pennsylvania, where we were to Columbia was about 50 minutes. It was probably close to an hour. We went there really early with the specific intent to tailgate. And we did. We had a trunk full of probably Natty Ice Pounders or something equally as ridiculous as that. The first song that you ever got to see is Long Road. Yep. Now, was this your like first ever experience of knowing Pearl Jam Live? Because the obvious thing is that they don't open with a traditional opening song that yeah. gets you fired up and excited. So did you have a prediction for the opener? Did it catch you off guard or anything like that? Uh, I, I didn't have any kind of prediction. I didn't know what to expect other than this is my favorite band and I'm finally getting to see them after wanting to see them for four or five years. There weren't a lot of places where you can go and find like what a set list was. I think the live stuff that I had, of course, I had seen Unplugged on MTV. I had, was Dissident, like the Dissident cassettes, they were like- uh, Yeah, the Dissident single. Yeah, yeah they, were, they were live, Atlanta. right? There were yeah. some live yeah. songs on that from Atlanta, I think. Those were, I think, the only live Pearl Jam things that I had heard. What do you remember as far as certain songs? What stuck out to you? They started out slow with Long Road, cool, but they went right into three hardcore rockers and like listening to them now, like double the pace that they are playing them these days, which I thought was really amazing, kind of like reminiscing and looking back. So they went from like these three hardcore rockers where today they might not play these until five or six songs deep, kind of ease the way into the show. And then they went into like the rhythmic rocker section from like six to 11, you know, all songs that have like slow parts and a little bit of rock and parts, sometimes they'll have a guitar solo or something in them. But it was like a really nice progression in My Tree, Corduroy, Not For You, Jeremy, Red Mosquito, just really melodic and, and nice section there before getting back into, you know, some sing-alongs and then some really fast-paced habit in Rearview Mirror. At the time, I was just enjoying it for being there and being at a Pearl Jam show. And now I'm looking back and analyzing it a little bit more and how it was a really nice progression through the opening set. If any of the listeners have the poster for the 96 Merriweather, I am searching for it. It is notoriously impossible to find. Obviously, I went in and I was going to buy some merch. I bought a shirt or something like that, maybe a sticker. But I didn't know what the deal was with the posters at the time, of course. But also, apparently, less than 50 of these posters were sold for some reason. They pulled them off the shelves and never even sold them in the store or anything, you know, before they were sold out. So they are incredibly expensive. There's only one listed on eBay right now. It's $2,300, and I can't pay that. I would pay a significant amount, but, you know, that's more than I paid for my Benny. I'm not going to buy a poster for that. But if anyone has a 96 Merriweather out there, go ahead and contact me. All right. Well, 
if you have that poster handy for less than $2,300 or so, then Brian, I think, would like to get a hand on that. But that is a very, very rare one. It's a cool poster. If anybody does have it, then, you know, good for you for getting your hands on it. But once again, big thank you to Brian for coming on and sharing his story and and just being open about all that. You know, this is all about sharing. Everything we do is just sharing either our stories or our thoughts, our opinions. It's one thing for us to do it, but then it's another thing for people to join us and, and get kind of the memory kick coming back when telling their side of the story too because even brian said before we started he was just like yeah not every memory is is in there some things are fuzzy but you listen to the show again and you can start to kind of put the pieces together so if we were able to help guide that in some way then i'm just glad that somebody got to in the smallest little bit kind of go back to that moment and and re-celebrate it again yeah, and just getting a first-hand experience from 1996 is very cool as well. You know, there's before your time with the band. At this time, I hadn't been to a show yet. Yeah, it's great to go back and kind of relive those memories and hear about, like, the stuff. Because, like, we don't have a video for the show. So it's great to get, you know, some of those first-hand memories and talk to someone who was there. Very cool. All right, why don't we get to that question of the week to remind you what it was. It was if you were able to acquire a time machine and go back in time and revisit any Pearl Jam era or any show, where are you going? So we got a lot of answers here, some very specific and then some that are just kind of for the years. But we'll start where we start here. John Hamilton said the ones that I didn't go to, Unplugged, Soldier Field, Alpine 1998, where his friends went, but he missed it because he was in San Francisco, and then Pink Pop. And I think a lot of the answers here all kind of like Pink Pop was said probably about 50 times. So, yeah, of of course you want to be at the band's height of their fame and the biggest crowd, even to date, like it still probably ranks in the top 10. That's a very common thing to want to be back at that moment. And then... John actually shared the ones that he got to go to, which he would like to revisit, which we got a little mix of both, which is which was nice. And Moline, PJ20, Night One, and then Chicago 2000. So those are some good answers right there. How about this? If you were to go anywhere, why don't you go back to the start? Pippa Jenkins says the off-ramp cafe on October 22nd, 1990. Would you do that sure. first? Sure. I would even say, hey, I want to go see Green River in 1984, man. Let's go back to the very beginning. Yeah, I, I'm I'm like all over the place. There's so many places to go that I think I would just kind of press all the buttons like an elevator, like Buddy the Elf did to make the Christmas tree and kind of just stop every single one of them. Right. You know, we have a contingent of Scottish Pearl Jam fans, the people over at Pearl Jam Scotland. So we're going to get this answer a lot. The big one for them, for the people that got to see it and the people that just missed it, was the Cat House Glasgow 1992 show, which that was something very, very early on in the show that we got to reveal the set list for that had never been seen before and all these photos from 1992 that were fantastic. So considering that we have a history with that one, I I would absolutely love to go back to it or even love to hear the show because we don't have a bootleg anywhere. 
hopefully that'll show up but yeah that was that was a crazy story yeah any of those ones where you don't have a set list that's like it's that unknown factor that like oh what did they do that we don't know about that one we do have a, a set list for just not any actual music there's a lot of atlanta 94 soldier field one answer saying vote for change in toledo where neil young joined for the encore it's a great one Brian says, back to the beginning to relive it all again. I'm going to buy stocks in Microsoft that can fund the tours. Pretty smart. Pretty smart. Okay. Okay. Mark Kirby always has very interesting answers. So he says, Tuesday, as he somehow remembers the actual day of the week, that's kind of impressive, July 10th, 2012 in Copenhagen, Denmark. He said that other than push me, pull me, it's one of the best set lists for my taste. And you think out of everything, you have the whole entire catalog wide open to you. You pick the best show for you as the music fan instead of the best show to visually go and see history on. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's good. Speaking of something we did earlier this year, I'd like to go sneak into self-pollution radio if I could, too. That might be a tough one. Because yeah. if you show up to an arena, then it's like, okay, inconspicuous. Nobody knows that you have some kind of time machine hanging out in the woods. But if you show up to that little dilapidated house and you're like, hey, guys, they'd probably kick you out pretty fast. I'll just tell them think. I'm the new drummer of the Fastbacks. Fair enough. Oh, uh, This is a good one from Valerie. How about we read this one? I'm going back to the first time I saw them at the Hollywood Palladium. On October 6, 1991, I was on the rail when I didn't even know what that meant, and there wasn't an actual rail. I could touch the stage and look straight up at Eddie. I want to go back there because now that I know what I know now, say that 50 times fast, I would love to do it again, but pay attention this time. So that's mm. there's a lot of like you know past regrets that have come up in this too. So I got two more that I like out of this, and then we'll get into the show. One is from Chet, and he says, June 24th, 1995, that's Golden Gate Park. He said, they blistered out of the gate, then Ed goes out, and on comes Neil. And this is obviously their, probably their most controversial show in their history. So he's at this show, and he said, my girlfriend at the time and I hung out for three songs and then opted to leave. To this very date, I regret not seeing the entire show. It's very interesting because that was a very hostile environment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? So, yep. yeah, you'd be part of some kind of history right there. Now, here's a like probably my favorite one out of all of this because it's really kind of thinking about the history of it all. June 30th, 2000. This is from Evan. So I can do everything in my power to stop the show before it even started. That right there. Come on. Oh, that's, that's heavy. But it's like that thing, if you go back and change the history, then it could turn out worse or something like that. Like, you know, I've, I've seen sci-fis where that's happened before. I think there was something that I watched that was, they were trying to stop the JFK assassination. And then when they came back to real time, it was corrupt government and, you know, people were sleeping on the streets and things like that. So. Yeah, I think we have to, you probably have to exclude that one from the discussion. Fair enough, but hey. If we got a bunch of us to go do that, at least we would know that there would be, hopefully, be people safe. But, yeah. All right. Good answers, everybody. Thanks for participating in that. And hopefully you guys enjoyed 
getting your shout out here and getting your story told a little bit. So time to tell some stories of our own. Now, after listening to Columbia, Maryland, 1996, this week, we can now get into the notes of the show and the storyline of the show. We're going to open this one with long road. very slowly the toms follow in this is a very slow progressing unveiling of the song five horizons explained it as a very sweet version and i think that's a really good description of it because when you think of long road do you necessarily think that it's a positive song or it's just an emotional song that's kind of getting everything out i kind of think the latter but this version seemed to have more of a positive spin on it. Like it had some hopefulness to it. It didn't seem like they were necessarily getting through something. I think it was just kind of a message and a message of hope and a message of positivity. That's, that's what I felt from this version. It was a very sweet, nice performance. Yeah, I I agree. I think wistful is kind of the adjective that comes to mind. It's like, no pun intended, the narrator is kind of longing for something or someone that they had to leave or something. But I agree with Five Horizons too. I think this is a very nice version. Not something we usually talk about when we talk about Pearl Jam songs, unless we're talking about some of the really rare stuff that they never play or a cover or something. But again, I kind of have to talk about Jack right from the beginning, especially him when he kicks in on that buildup. Yes, he can be very rhythmic and very tribal, but he can also be very sparse and let the song breathe and let the kind of moment build. And it's almost like less is more when it comes to this. But the thing that, that stuck out to me about this long road is just how they use the dynamics of it, like how it starts out with Stead, and like you mentioned, the drums come in and then it builds up and goes down and it goes into the end. Like this is maybe the most dynamic version of long road that I've ever heard. I was very, very impressed. And overall, kind of like we both said, you don't think of going into Pearl Jam shows and it being like kind of a warm moment 
you kind of think of like, okay, this is going to get into something. It's either going to be tense, it's either going to be exciting, it's either going to be a sing-along. But to have like something that felt like it was almost yeah tender like just it was kind of like a love song to the crowd in a way and it was only the fifth version so they're playing around with things on this too yeah believe it or not there's a lot of songs here that are around that fourth fifth sixth seventh version all these no code era songs this is part of the evolution of long road i suppose and it fits so many different occasions but i wish that they would utilize this one a little bit more sometimes you can just play songs anytime and they can work in a certain way. I think that long road doesn't necessarily have to be played every time there's something crucial or emotional happening. I think it could be played and be just like this. Well, we're going to start off with the fast ones, and I thought that it kept progressing as we went on in these three that we're going to talk about here. Hail, hail, animal, spin the black circle. Hail, hail was very much in the pocket. It, it had that hail, hail groove on it, just like Jack that original sound that you get from Hell Hell that Matt kind of adopted at first and now he's kind of took over another bit of it, but Hell Hell sounded very good into Animal and then Animal revs up a little bit, but it really feels like they're just building to that spin the black circle being the crazed breakout big moment of the early set. Yeah, and again, you're getting like one from each of the albums here. You know, we're going to get to 10 later, but... Yeah, I think Hail Hail is the one that like fits in the spot. Like that's the one from the most recent record, so they're gonna put it up top. But yeah, I thought Spin the Black Circle was the highlight at the end. Mike just goes off into some kind of chaotic just frenzy, it sounded like, and while Stone and Jeff and Jack are holding it together it was very, very cool and something you don't always hear on that song. Yeah, and it just keeps elevating. Like, once it kind of reaches the bridge, it kind of revs up just a little bit. When that chord change happens and Ed's getting into that little bridge part, the lay down your crooked arm, and, and he just plows through the end of it. Like, that's that's where you kind of get the spark. That's when you kind of start the surge on it. And, yeah, I don't know if this had a GA in front or anything like that, but I'm going to guess that there were some people bobbing along to this and, you know, maybe getting some fun moshing going, hopefully some non-dangerous moshing going, but yeah, that was a good one for this section. In My Tree and Corduroy are going to be the next two, which are just, like, say those in any set list, back-to-back, In My Tree into Corduroy. I don't know how many times that has happened, but, gee, if they did that nowadays, would that not Uh, annihilate your crowd? Sure, I mean, it hasn't happened nearly enough, because it should happen every night. Yeah, probably my two favorite Pearl Jam songs, back-to-back here. In My Tree especially, like... Again, only the fifth version, but Jack is already doing like a different sounding kind of intro thing. What what do you think this sounds like? Did you pick up on like a rhythm that might maybe reminded you of something else? You know, I feel like we've talked about it before. I feel like I've thought about it before, but this time I can't put my finger on it. What, Me, it what, sounded like he was doing the the dirty Frank thing, like the. I didn't put my finger on that. No. 
da, 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 da. it's not exactly it and i know he's not doing dirty frank drum tag at the beginning of in my tree but it's reminiscent like the rhythm he's hitting that accent on the da-da, and then he's doing another thing to come back and then he comes back in on it and it's it was oh, okay because like we we've talked about that you know we just did the evolution episode on it a month or so ago that kind of kicked into my ear i was like oh, okay that's cool but yeah he does a little pre-intro to the song on the drums it's very very cool i like when he does that and i always thought that the song just needed like massive extensions before going in this could have been like jack's big arena making moment where he just kind of goes off and does like a two to three minute thing and then kind of the come no back moment or just yeah. give him give him 10 minutes to do a solo right and i know that it's kind of rare for matt to even get that moment he gets the the even flow sometimes but it really feels like that was opened up for jack to do something very very special on it and he's gotten a little bit more than this at at some points at its best but he deserved a big grand intro on this song at some point in his tenure he's definitely the talking point about this version it just as they continue to to build the pace and he continues to set the backdrop for it and you can really feel the octopus arms just busting out on this every note you can almost feel each and every hit when the song opens up, you know, after Ed finishes the vocal and the, the guitar comes in, it just takes off, like, just soars. And, like, that moment always gives me chills when we listen to these bootlegs live. Because, yeah, someday I'll, I'll get to see it in person, hopefully. But, yeah, it's all about that moment in the song when it just releases and the, and the song just takes off. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very special moment, one of the best moments in the show. euphoric songs in Pearl Jam's canon. Mm -hmm. And then no transition right into Corduroy, which is just like, I mean, we talked about some Corduroy into Grievance last week and how that was no transition right there. Like, that's the way to do it right there. That was just kind of a perfect tie-in between the two. But again, Jack on Corduroy, he's always been my favorite drummer for Corduroy, and it's just that that rhythm that he has during those verses just feels like he's fucking chopping down a tree. It just pounding, pounding. It feels he's just kind of like a lumberjack back there, and it's setting this interesting tone for the song that you don't get from the other drummers that are kind of playing it more to the original or something like that but Jack in Corduroy has always put this spin on it and always kind of made it sound prolific in his own way 
the use of dynamics too that you don't get with corduroy after a certain point they really kind of opened it up and made it this kind of stadium anthem but here it gets very very quiet and they're using again Jack's a very dynamic drummer. They're using it to like build off the quiet and the loud and then using the build to very good effect. Yeah, I like this a lot. It even seemed like when they got quiet and then they went in the solo, it kind of seemed like there was no solo on the front end of it. And it was just complete strumming, complete just rhythm taking it over. And yeah, just I let thought, that build go, yeah. I thought that sounded really, really good. You know, sometimes you just don't need a solo for that to just work. You know, you want solos because Mike is going to tear the roof off it, but sometimes just continue on that pace, continue on that momentum, continue on that energy, and if, if, it's going to take Stone you or, If Jeff and Stone are locked in and Jack's locked in, then yeah, you don't really need anything over that. That can carry the song by itself. Absolutely. versions of both these songs and then we're going to get to what i think is like the first moment the first introduction with the crowd the first time and it's really going to kind of set the tone for ed and his relationship with this crowd and it's a rare thing for that era too because he was kind of kept to himself but every now and again he would start talking he would kind of open up a little bit and yeah not for you you can even tell right from the second verse starting small my table seats just two but all you can stay like, that was a very cool lyric change. The crowd is pretty audible singing on this. You were yeah, able to hear yeah. them pretty well. And this was kind of the first time where it's like, okay, the crowd is present and the crowd is going. Then we're going to get into Ed communicating with the crowd. He kind of has a little bit of a misstep going into the bridge and pauses and kind of thinks to himself for a second.
that in a nutshell, I think is the most definitive thing about Eddie Vedder in 1996. Go back to the Rolling Stone article. A couple days later would be the Randall's Island show where he would talk about that in full. And I think that's in his head that, you know, he's sort of gained a lot of this fame. He's gained a lot of being in the spotlight. And he feels like people are writing their own stories about him. And it's a misrepresentation of him. That's what he's going through at this time. Like, even go back to the situation that led to Luke and being written and all that. Like, people just won't leave him alone. And he is sitting there probably thinking half the time, like, people don't understand who I am. Like, if they got to know me and got to understand the real me, then maybe we wouldn't be having this issue. When you're in a band like this and, you know, he's using metaphor and using things like that, when you have a thousand people or five thousand people following your band, it's easy to think, okay, well, these people get it. Like, these are our fans and they know, but they went to a point where all of a sudden they have millions of people who are fans of their band and some of them just are going to take it literally and not get the context because they don't dig in to get the real story and to figure out the context of everything so he takes these moments you know you've got 18 20 thousand people here singing along and i'm sure he's like yeah we see this a lot you know in the in the years after this too to like take a moment and be like let me just take a minute and let these people know what's going on and he's always been you know a guy who who wears his heart on his sleeve and he's not afraid to just kind of be vulnerable and and talking to the microphone like that yeah this is cool i mean it, this is something like too where if you're like brian like in this crowd then you're like yeah that's one way that he brings you in like hey he's one of us he gets it like he's getting you on his side here he seems a little bit more relaxed and he can kind of sit back sort of laugh at a situation and just kind of speak his mind and it's great because now that turns into what we know of him today as being the most open and honest musician that you can even think of that's still out there so Jeremy was an amazing follow-up to this because you have your crowd, you have this moment where you're connected to Ed, and now the crowd is revved up. The crowd is hyped. They're like, okay, what's next? We want to go off on something next. If they went into a no-code song, if they went into even Red Mosquito, which is going to be the song afterwards, they'd be like, yeah, cool, this is fine. But it's a big hit song, so they're taking all of that that they just reacted to and they're bringing it into another song that they knew before the show happened. They're going to play Jeremy. We're going to be excited for this because this is for the majority of people. This is the song that got us into the band. I think it just gets the endorphins going. The crowd screams, the little pieces here, the fuck and you know, the woes. And they do every little call and response thing. And it doesn't even have to do anything. He's just, like, yeah, you guys get it. And, and when he doesn't need to kind of be the band leader on that, you know you have a pretty strong crowd and pretty smart crowd to go along with it. Oh, yeah, it's a master class in setless construction because, yeah, you're going to get everyone on your side and not for you, and then you're, you're going to follow it up with this big sing-along. Like, we look at this now and you think, like, oh, yeah, you know, Corduroy, not for you, Hail, Hail, like, those are big sing-alongs. But at the time, those are all still pretty new. The only really sing-along you had was Animal, which comes in and goes by very quickly so to get jeremy here to give the crowd a chance and again the, the first 10 song of the night give the crowd a chance to kind of send that energy back is very well done and yet not the best quality bootleg on this it's fine but 
you really hear the crowd come through and it's like, oh, okay, you, know, you really feel like, okay, there's 18,000, 20,000 people here and they're up for this. Now, this is interesting kind of afterwards. This is the first kind of break where they're taking and Ed's going to address the crowd without being in the middle of a song or anything like that. And this is really interesting and this can spark a little bit of a conversation if it needs to. He says, there's a song called Song X on a record called Mirrorball. And this song is its baby brother called Red Mosquito. I had never heard this before. This is the first time that this even caught my attention. And, and the minute he said that, I thought about it for a second. Like, yep, he's absolutely right. A little less of the solo section in Song X, but it's the same kind of energy. It's the same kind of flow. It's the same kind of balance between the verse and the chorus and kind of going back and forth. And Red Mosquito has short verses. It's only like four lines or so. And I think Song X is the same way. It's kind of in and out really quick. And yeah, I wonder if that was just kind of because they wrote it around the time after Mirrorball, obviously after the Golden Gate situation, yeah, but yeah. that has to be on their mind that we're taking it off of, of Song X and it kind of, and maybe it's even not. Maybe it's one of those things where it's just like, it's so ingrained because they know that they recorded it with Neil before that they just kind of did it naturally and that's how the song kind of came about. Yeah, the, the big thing that sticks out is they're in the same time signature. I don't know if it's, it's three, four, six, eight in this one, but it's that kind of waltz time signature. Dun, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. You know, you go back and you could play them almost on top of each other and really hear the similarities. I had read this on Five Horizons throughout the year, but I'd never gone back and, like, made the connection of, like, okay, like, let me go back and listen to these back-to-back and and really feel. But, yeah, there's definitely a connection there. We almost never talk about that. So, yeah, it's interesting that that comes up here, that, like, he would talk about Neil being an influence on this and that's kind of the thread that kind of ties them through this is something we'll have to keep an eye out for in the future too yeah we got song x and red mosquito that connect we got cinnamon girl and i got shit that connect there's got to be another one or two you'd think right probably gonna have to keep an eye out on all that storylines some of you neil experts out there let's get to work and figure this out yep we know you're out there too all right so we're addressing people again he says i can see you all down here i don't think we've been here before so forgive us if we can't see everybody have we met looks like some of you people on the grass no not you and i think he's like pointing to somebody who i think is probably smoking a joint or something like that i don't think we've played this at any of the shows yet so we'll play it now they played it at key arena so his memory going back a week or so is I guess a little shaky, but it's black. And again, this is a crowd version that they take over the song. And, you know, it's a community moment. They're all singing together. It's very audible. And for this era, you don't think of crowds being like a unit like this. And that's very impressive for them to all kind of get together on this song that obviously is a big influence on what their Pearl Jam fandom is, is what I'm guessing. But it just felt like the whole thing was just like a community experience. We don't think of like 10 songs being highlights of this era. You always think of like, yeah, Jack and the Vitalogy songs and the No Code songs, but Jack on Black, very impressive. Again, being able to be sparse and quiet and then build up when it needs to build up and hit those high moments. and 
when Mike comes in on black, this sounded like the way they play it now. It just blew me away with the intensity and the passion of the solo. Like, I did not expect this from 1996 Black. And again, like, they weren't playing it every other night like they do now. But yeah, very good version. A little bit of the difference between now and then is that it never really had a serious extension back in the mid-90s. That kind of came about, you know, a little bit later into the years where, like, they become this fully formed arena rock band and they're doing the doo doo doos and, and the crowd is responding with fireflies or lighters or whatever it is. And that's the only thing that kind of sets it apart, but definitely the mood felt like it would be a version from now it definitely felt like a big moment for this night yeah absolutely habit rearview mirror here i thought the habit was very good i got kind of lost in this version which doesn't usually happen with me in habit i don't think i've kind of considered this to be a fun song before i'm just kind of like all right well here we go it's a banger it's kind of a rager it's kind of fierce and angry but i i thought this version just had like an ounce of just fun and kind of a bouncy vibe to it did you feel the same way a little bit i mean if following up black with habit is an interesting choice that's something you don't usually think of being in a set something that would make sense but he does kind of like do the tongue-in-cheek thing during the little vocal breakers as somebody standing in complete darkness and i get that was the thing too we didn't mention i think during longer i think they came out and it was very very dark so maybe he was kind of like referring to that and maybe they had killed the stage lights for that part so yeah having a little fun with it playing around with it and just playing it up it's just kind of the garage rock anthem that it is and then following up with that rear view mirror back to back was very, very good. I like this. The tease intro there that kind of evolves into the full band starting, I thought was very good. This is one of those versions where we get the inflection where he does the I seem to look away instead of doing it the normal way, which I thought is, is nice every time they interpret it. The bridge pretty much encapsulates everything that they were doing with the song this time. It was very stripped down, not a lot of percussion leading to when Jack comes back in to make it feel like it kind of snaps back at you immediately and you're kind of back into that that focus and that energy. But yeah, like these bridges, it's kind of setting the tone for what would come later and they would get a little bit more experimental. They would try a few more things. But you know, at this point it was it was a little bit stripped down, a little bit spacey and just waiting for the moment for Jack and, and, and Jeff to get back in. Rearview Mirror in this time is because like we think of Immortality, Not For You, Corduroy as having those just crazy kind of jams that they would go off on, but they never really took Rearview Mirror to that level at this point. It's an interesting choice, but still just a banger like to put here in the latter half of the set oh yeah just throw a credible version of rearview mirror there like just something they've got in their back pocket like yeah again hearing jack on it just something totally different because even brian mentioned you know matt's such a different drummer and plays with with more power and more precision and jack is more loose and plays with you know more feel and rhythm and it's just a different take on it it's interesting to go back in here yeah he annihilates the ending just a massive yeah. presence on this and after that like you're kind of thinking that could close a, a set you know that's oh, yeah. strong enough to close the set yeah but i mean we got so much to go just in the main set and a lot of it is just extremely impressive but one of those things is not immortality there's a false start at first and then they get into the song and when they get up to the lyrics ed comes up completely blank
I guess that's going back to what he was saying and not for you. Like, I, I might miss a lyric, I might forget. And this time he completely whiffs on it. However, you know, in most situations, I think that, like, they'll kind of address it like, oh, I fucked up, and, you know, maybe they'll stop for a second and kind of figure out what they're doing, but there was absolutely no time to dwell. They aborted it and transitioned very smooth into Better Man, I thought. You don't usually hear that. There's only a couple of times I can think of where they started something and then it just didn't go well, and then they just went, nope, screw it, move on. Normally, that one kind of, time with UR where the drum machine wasn't working. Yeah. That's the only time I could really think of top head. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, just taking it. I think Ed is, like I said, Ed is totally confused on the lyrics, just completely sings, I think, the wrong thing. And it was just like, yeah, no, move on, cut it. So yeah, but then like when they switch into Better Man, again, it gets a huge cheer, like the biggest cheer since Jeremy, basically. And the crowd seems like they were into it. They weren't upset that they didn't get immortality. Well, here's the thing. I thought that the crowd actually seemed pretty fired up on immortality, but then once they yeah. hear the intro to Better Man, oh, yeah. it's it just off the rails. Yep. So, yeah. yeah, what's so interesting about Better Man in this time period, I got the numbers for you here, is that this is, at this show, the only the 37th performance. In 1996, right. where it had like a full year on the back of it being kind of a radio song, not a single, but people started to know it. It was becoming a hit of theirs. But you have to compare it with the other songs from 95, and when you think of other Vitalogy songs, Spin a Black Circle at 49 at the time, Corduroy, 50, Not For You, 65, of course, being played a lot in, in 94, and then Whipping with 61 being played both in 1993 and 1994. It's interesting to see how it all developed and how Better Man has basically swept the floor with everything outside of Corduroy, really. Corduroy's been played like 50 more times, but it took off and became one of the standard great live songs of theirs. That has a lot to do with something that happens at the very next show after this one. Correct, yeah. This is the the last version of Better Man before they start the Save It For Later tag at the very next show. Which is interesting because I thought that I guess in in a way, it's kind of like you have this muscle memory when you're hearing songs. And when you're hearing them kind of go off the tail end of Better Man, my initial reaction is like, okay, wait for the tag, wait for Save It For Later, because it felt like they had built up enough momentum where they could drive into it. And I wonder if they were thinking, this needs something else right here. This needs a little bit of juice to, to kind of get going. And the next night in Augusta, Maine, which is back in our archives, we did that last year, they pull it out and the rest is history with that. Very cool. It goes back to Ed listening to the English beat in the early 80s and coming up with that, basing that melody of Better Man on Save It For Later, and it kind of came full circle. But... Yeah, this is the last uh, of the era. After this, they flip the switch and it's, it's onward and upward. Whipping and State of Love and Trust are going to follow up on Better Man. Whipping right in the pocket, great groove without trying to get ahead of itself. Then State of Love and Trust, Ed actually says beforehand, this is another, and coming off of Black where he says he thought that they didn't play it, which they did play it in 96 already, but State of Love and Trust, he says, we haven't played it in a long, long time since Salt Lake City in 1995. That's 
almost going on a full year. That's like 10 months right, right there. So that's, yeah, that's a good amount of time not playing a song live. And granted, only, only nine shows, but almost a year. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, that was the time. yeah. Right, right, right. You have to take that into account for sure. But I thought for them not playing it and them not getting it under their feet in a very long time, I thought this version just popped right from the jump, like really good power, really good energy. And once they reach the bridge, the crowd gets to really erupt. And it seems like maybe there could have been like a thing that they were reacting to, but it felt like the whole place just unloaded during State of Love and Trust. Yeah, again, another one that everybody knows. And yeah, looking back on it now, you're like, man, there never should have been a time when they weren't playing this every other show, every third show. But some of those songs from the early days kind of went by the wayside in the mid-90s. But yeah, it gets a big cheer. And again, Mike had kind of the big moment with Red Mosquito and Black, but he really hasn't had those huge moments in the show. So this was one where I think either the crowd was ready to hear some Mike McCready shredding on this. Yeah, yeah, I think they got what they deserved. We got the last two songs in the set here. It's going to be alive, and then we'll get in the blood in a second. But, you know, Ed starts out the Ocean Walk slowly line a little bit differently, and I thought that they were going to kind of throw a curveball and do a little speak sing there. And instead, they he does the I'm ready to fuck you line instead, which gets a good reaction from the crowd. It would be interesting if Ed decided not to sing that verse right there. If he decided to kind of do the speak sing on it, it would be an interesting little way of diverting and changing the song that I think could have worked for who the character is in the song, especially if it was done early in their history, I thought could have been really, really interesting. Yeah. And you know, and I, we don't know there, you know, there could be one that we haven't gotten to yet that gets a little closer to that. So that's something we'll have to be on the lookout for when we go back to this era. But yeah, it's like, this is the era of a lot of being like, you know, we're close to that. Oh, I don't know why we play this song anymore. Like they were a different band and like had moved on kind of from it. So it's, it's curious that it showed up as much as it did. They were still kind of playing it, but yeah, it's about, you know, the ready to fuck you thing. It's like, Oh, I said a bad word. Like let's cheer. So that that's kind of a cliche kind of moment that doesn't really do anything for me now in retrospect, but yeah, live it's like it's not what it would be ten years later, twelve years later. It just it just felt like it was here just to give the crowd and, and give Mike another moment. It doesn't have like a featured spot at the show, which is weird to think about. Yeah, sometimes it was being played in that penultimate main set closer, yeah. which yeah, that is a little bit of a weird spot. That's kind of almost hiding it from what it could be. It's like, yeah. yeah, we're giving you a position where we're kind of signifying the end of a set, but also it's not going to be the lasting moment of this main set. It's going to be blood. So, yeah, they were definitely looking for ways to kind of hide its strength, I suppose. And, you know, if, if anybody's sitting there and saying we got to do a live every night, I, I believe that person's probably Stone, who just wants to go out there and usually kind of hit them with, with the songs that they know the best. And, yeah, I, I guess that was kind of a give and take of what they were doing there. So very interesting from this era, for sure. Yeah, and then, like, yeah you're, you're looking at a main set with Jeremy, Black, Alive, State of Love and Trust. Like, it feels weird for this era to have so many of those, like, heavy 10 songs in the main set, and it's going to lead to an interesting ending. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, in between the two, crowd is chanting for Eddie, but right away he puts a stop to it. He's like, nope, 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 nope. None of that. Yeah. 
If you can see what it looks like up here, it looks crazy. I was talking with Kim from the Fastbacks about how we remember going to shows like this and just that feeling we had. To be part of that feeling and to be up here, we're just glad to be part of that whole feeling. I've been thinking about it for the past few days, and it's just crazy. You guys have been really nice. Thanks for listening to our music. Blood. Fun closer, I think, when the whole crowd is clapping in unison and the bass drum hits kind of in the bridge and all that, like you get to build up to that big moment. There's a really, really fun call and response that happens. Whether Ed really knows it or not, it seems like he's a really good showman from this show, which that's not a thing for 1996. some of the angst and some of the tension that you sometimes feel on stage and in the banter and everything but yeah i agree i mean the, this call and response on blood is the highlight like hearing this crowd on it repeating everything he's doing and he's not giving him an easy one this is a difficult one and that this immediately like stuck out to me as one of the coolest things like a lot of time you know we would get you get fame or you get atomic dog but this call and response i think is is one of the best things on blood i've heard in a long time we did get a slight snippet of fame, though. He kind of, it's kind of under his breath. He goes, fame, 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 yeah, yeah. fame. So we got a little bit of that. It's not marked on any of the sites. We'll have to talk to Dave to see if it gets the presence for live footsteps, but we'll have to see about that. But yeah, like the ending, just shredding the vocal cords, and the band nearly, nearly descends into madness at the end. It was one of those kind of that felt like it could have went the way of Deep, where Deep just kind of loses oh, yeah. bearings a little bit. And yeah, Blood is the spiritual successor to those early versions of Deep, sure. For sure. Alright, that takes us into the encore. Let's pause for station identification, talk a little bit about what's going on with all the goings on. And last week, I said to you guys, I said we hadn't gotten our first patron of 2023 yet. And happy to share with you guys that we only not got our first, but we got our second too. I'll kind of explain that in a second. So let's thank both of them. 
Now, the first one I thought was very interesting when I when I saw the name at first because when I saw the first name, when I saw the first couple letters of the last name, I'm like, "Oh, that's nice. Okay, I I that 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 was nice of her." And if you don't know, the name here that I'm going to mention is Emily Farrier. If you look at the first few <laughs> letters of the last name, that looks like Farrar. Emily is the name of your wife. So That's I, correct. Thought, yeah. I thought that that was your wife. It that, even, I even did a little double take, like almost had to call downstairs and be like, hey, um, did you, <laughs> did you, you, you didn't need to do that. But uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's funny. Yeah. She'll get a kick out of that. So for Emily Farrier, welcome to Patreon. And thank you for officially becoming the first patron of 2023 but it's really a shared title because Gianluca Camarada from Australia joined up this week too very shortly after Emily did and they said that they joined up with the intention of hoping that they could be the first patron so mm-hmm. I told him back I said look if you want that distinction then we're going to call it a tie we're just going to call both of you the first patrons of 2023 and and leave it at that so Thanks to both of you, both Emily and Jen Luca, and hopefully you guys enjoy all the Patreon stuff and the community and all that, because that's what it's about. Can't wait for you guys to get ingrained into all that. What do we got going on for Patreon? I believe there should be a late night series episode out coming out, right? Yep, going to be out going back to 2004, the Masters of War on Letterman. That's a very kind of intense performance that we'll talk about. It should be out very soon. Yep, and we'll have some other things kind of coming off the docket. Like I mentioned before, Brian, his full interview will be on Patreon the next day or so, so look out for that. I'm doing some more video things that'll be on YouTube and be on our website as well if you're interested in those things. I'm also working on right now, I'm working on a sort of a piece for the Pearl Jam fan portraits book that's coming out and helping Tanya out with that. So yeah, a lot of things to look forward to and it's all about supporting the show and and chipping in a little bit and then getting a little bit back in return. So if you are interested in A, helping us, B, helping yourself, just like Brian did today, helped himself to opening up the vault of memories there. And that's the coolest thing that I think we do is just get the ability to aid people in finding those memories again. If you're interested in that, just a show request, or you just want to help out and just want to listen to the content, all of it's good for us. Patreon.com slash live on four legs. There are three ways that you can donate or three tiers you can donate to the bonus leg tier. It's a dollar a month. If you just want to support, if you just want to listen, that's where you want to be with that. The $1 a month. We have so many people that donate on the bonus leg and, you know, all combined makes for a huge, huge contribution. So very thankful for anybody that joins up on the bonus leg tier, just like Emily and Jim Luca did. That's great to see that. Then we have the Gigaleg tier that I believe Brian, who we spoke to today, is on. And that one will get you your show request, just like he had for this one. 
And if you decide that you want to do $10 a month and get the full car wash experience of the whole thing, then you get a full profile for yourself. We'll, we'll sit there and talk about all of your favorite live moments, all your favorite. It's basically your Pearl Jam fandom in one you know, an hour of a recording or something like that. You also get a profile for the website. And then of course you do get the request for an episode as well. And those will kind of jump to the top whenever you guys fulfill one and want one to be had. So there's a lot of reasons to join right now. It's just kind of building to the next tour. It's helping us out with website funding. It's helping us out with also video editing funding as well. Whenever those tour dates get announced, we'll have the schedule and we'll be looking at, okay, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, and then hopefully providing you, you know, the backbone of what we're really meant to do in covering these shows live in person right after it happened. So instant reaction, that's the kind of things that we want to be on the road for. So three ways that you can join and sign up patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to the patreon app and search for live on four legs or live on four legs.com you will find a button that says become a patron and they'll tell you how you do the rest so that's all i got might as well go back into the rock on this one it's going to be pretty short encores here they weren't doing encores for too long in this era so we're gonna get who you are coming first and then even flow following up on the attachment of that and yeah i like who you are as being the encore startup and i think that this got used in this position a lot in 1996 where it was played the most it's just a way to get the crowd back in and kind of ease them back in and then you're going to hit with even flow something big like that so they're going to get excited and electric again but it's always good to kind of have that little bit of period of time where you can just kind of sit there and just enjoy the vibe and, and not have to go into overdrive of like headbanging and just going crazy in the crowd yeah especially coming off blood like just a few minutes before this you're, sure. you, you can't build off of that and you, you can't ratchet up from blood like that is the big moment so yeah come out and kind of do a 180 and do a little cool down with who you are and again who you are great underrated song too and again only the fifth performance here i listen to this and anytime that i have a question with what i'm hearing nowadays as if you guys listened in last week and got to hear it we introduced sort of a new segment into the show with our friend the gear guru javier hervas and he's incredible like he can just figure this stuff out just by listening to it and and he has just such a vast knowledge of the whole thing and i asked him about who you are because it felt like the end where jeff is doing the doom 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 it felt like he was almost playing that with a bow like that could have been a cello or something like that so i addressed this with him and i asked what's up with this version what do you hear and he came up with such a simple but perfect response so here's what the gear guru had to say So I was listening to the track a couple of times. Who You Are is played on the key of E. Jeff is always doing the same form 
on the bass, which is. Which is super cool, right? Because Mike and Stone are doing other stuff while they were playing. Now, in the last part, the only thing that he does different is he starts the same part on a B note, which is part of the same chord, it's part of E, so you can do that. So the only thing that he's doing different is that he's dragging the notes using the same sustain that the bass is creating over the note, and it sounds kind of kind of dragging the note a little bit more using the same sustain he plays the same shape the same part way higher on the neck compared to the other two or stone or mic if you want to call them it's just basically doing a different figure based on the same note and he's looking for a different harmony just to complement what mike and stone are doing super cool another proof another piece of evidence why jeff is such a dynamic bass player that he can go back and forth doing that kind of stuff but yeah that's what it is not a lot of science behind it but super clever arrangement so thanks for the tutorial on all that yeah, again yeah just a, a cool little thing and just kind of enhances what we're talking about here from a side that i think john and i don't necessarily get the chance to go in full depth on because i don't think we quite have the knowledge at least as much as Javier does, but he's definitely teaching us a thing or two. So expect him back on a lot of episodes this year. That's for sure. Do you have as much talent as Mike McCready does? Cause we're about to talk about even flow encore play here. I believe this was more normal in 1996. I think there were spots where they were doing it to either come close to ending the encore or something like that. And, you know, not a very long solo, but the tricks are out. It, it's a pretty typical Mike pulling out Hendrix or pulling out Van Halen kind of stuff. And the crowd, I think, is a huge factor into this again. Sometimes when you have a bootleg that's kind of a crowd boot, you know, you get somebody that's right next to the mic that is prominent and you can hear their voice for, for portions of the show. And that, that kind of sometimes can sort of drown out what the rest of the crowd is doing and make you think, oh, that was a big crowd moment when it was just, no, that was just one or two guys that, that were a little bit louder than the rest. But you can fully tell on this one, like, this isn't just one person singing. This is a big sing-along. Just like the rest of the show, they bring it again on Even Flow. Surprise, surprise. And again, you know, coming out for an encore when you've had, you know, people have gone to the bathroom and talking and getting a beer and whatever else you know come back with who you are everyone's kind of like okay it's a new song like kind of hang out but then as soon as they hear even flow it's like oh here we go like everybody knows the song it's gonna be a big moment so it's very good placement as well to follow up who you are with even flow and to like kind of build up to the end of the show here now we're getting into daughter next and i think this is the time where i don't need to really explain anything i'll i'll talk when it gets to wma but i have no business talking about embrace because that's your field right there you're the master of anything ian mckay and fugazi just take it and go with it yeah embrace is the maybe lesser known of ian mckay's project in between minor threat and fugazi this was like 1985 1986 like the revolution summer DC 
area, Rites of Spring, Marginal Man, Soul Side, all that stuff coming out of there. Like the formation of what would become Fugazi. So I'm not surprised that Ed knows this, kind of surprised that it took him as long as it did to get to it. But Embrace had some absolute anthems. There's a song called Money, a song called Do Not Consider Yourself Free. It's where the music became more personal, and people call it it's one of those things like the beginning of emo, uh, what would become emo, where it started to get a little more introspective and the lyrics became a little more personal. But just an incredible short-lived band like Fugazi formed in 1987, so went basically right to that. But yeah, No More Pain is just a great song like the the quote here that he picks is like you know your emotions are, are nothing but politics like tying in that to daughter i think is is very very well done the debut of this tag they would only do it i think one more time in 2003 but yeah i mean anytime they go deep like this very very obscure into dc kind of hardcore and and emo this is right up my alley yeah this is one of the ones i've been looking forward to when i saw we were doing this show yeah the maryland virginia dc area the other show they were talking about that would happen in virginia so that's absolutely a tribute to that and it's kind of like the progression like they're not doing a suggestion tag anymore so do something different go into this now so very very cool got to talk about the wma tag too because it, it gets real quiet and you just like hear just a little bit of the stone rhythm guitar going but it gets real quiet it gets down low it felt like another moment where the the crowd was just eating out of that and it almost just hearing it like that we don't get a lot of versions that that happens it's just kind of a spine tingling moment to get that that was very very cool So we're going to close off Encore 1 with Mankind and then into leaving here. Stone has a funny moment. He asks the crowd if they want him to sing one, and they reply positively. And he says, aw, no you don't. So I can't remember if we 
ever done back-to-back weeks where we've done Mankind. <sighs> Probably not. Probably yeah. not, but here we are. It's a fine version. I don't think it compares to last week's at all, because yeah. that one was just kind of like they were prepared for. They had that song locked in, but it's fine. A couple of missteps here and there. It's not as confident as a 2000 version, which in 1996, they would have confident versions of this, no doubt. But it seems as time went on, in a way, Stone would become more comfortable, but he would also become a little less comfortable. So that's where yeah, we're at with that. Only only the fourth version. So yeah, maybe a little bit of nerves coming in, but I thought it was fun. It fits in with kind of the energy and the, the mentality of the show where it's like, yeah, they're in a good mood on stage or having fun. We have kind of a unique ending coming up here, but very cool to see this in, in the encore. So for leaving here, not much to say. Like it, it's, I love when they can kind of go off and close on that. It's one of those songs that just has the song name tie into just leaving the show. It's a perfect kind of closer. But I don't really have much. The solos on this, I only know Ed and Mike at the end. I don't know what the first two were. My guess was going to be Mike Stone, Ed, Mike. Yeah, I thought it sounded like it might even been Stone, 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 Mike. No, because that's the traditional, that little do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's always Ed. Yeah, yeah. There okay. was definitely Ed on that. Maybe yeah, so the first two were Stone, though. Maybe. Letting him bask in the glow of mankind a little bit. That right there is Encore 1. I think we got a lot to talk about with Encore 2 ending the show. So Ed's out there, and he gets on the drums real quick, plays a little bit of a beat, and Stone gets on the mic again, second time in the night. And says, this next one is a tribute to the weather. I don't think it rained. Did it rain? Now, Ed says, people have been holding up signs for super rare songs. So we chose this. Some of you guys are going to know it that have been around since the very beginning. the encore the other time they played it in 1996 before this and that was at the showbox show where they played it and i just want to share an insane statistic with you outside of 1991 and 1992 1996 was the most that they had played wash in any year the times that they played it five yeah that's Remarkable. that's crazy. Still hasn't been played a hundred times. That that's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that we know that, of. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. Good. There's <laughs> certainly about, some set list left off. How about this? Here, here's another stat for for you statisticians out there. And I don't know this. Maybe you know we can come back next week. Send the detective team out. How many shows end with three lost dogs? Ooh, 
Oh yeah, I can't. I can't think of another one. Ah, uh, that's that's a question for Dave. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good. I'm sure there were some that were like that had leaving here you know, led better, and maybe I don't know footsteps or something like that. Who knows? Cool. But yeah. that's that's really really tough. Now, washes should be a big moment, and I think in 1996 it's going to be a different moment than in 2023. If you do washes your second to last song at a show this year, oh. it's going to be one of your most talked about things of the whole entire year. Yeah. In 1996, remember this is still the B side to Ten. Outside of 1992, they barely did it at all. It felt like in any other era, if they did it, the crowd would have been like, whoa, oh my God, what a moment. But it was a lukewarm response. And I don't blame that at all on them because, you know, you you need some familiarity with B-sides. And if people just didn't collect the singles, then they wouldn't have stumbled across this. But for a song like Wash, it definitely does feel weird that it didn't get that kind of response it's not one of those big kind of end of show anthems there's a reason it usually opens up a show like it's more of a tone setter and a mood setter than like something that's gonna send you home happy and have that big cathartic moment at the end of the show i mean it it's a good version it's very very cool like it sounds very kind of like chilled out and i love hearing what jack and stone are doing but it's completely like antithetical to what we usually hear, and especially in an encore two, they weren't doing porch a lot. This would normally be a porch spot, but taking requests, so you get what you get. I'm curious as to what kind of the other rare ones you you know maybe like a dirty Frank sign or a breath sign or something like that. But yeah, choosing to go with Wash here is definitely an interesting choice for the vibe of encore two. I'm gonna guess probably hard to imagine thrown in there Possibly. as well. Sure. You're closing out the night with Yellow Leadbetter. Usually when we get to Leadbetter, it's like the end of the bread and butter. So we're like, yeah, Leadbetter, a nice close to the night. And, you know, you get everybody arms around each other celebrating what a good night they had. But the song itself, we usually don't go into too much of a depth on because we all know Leadbetter. However, this is the 30th performance of the song. And it feels like they have some juice and some determination whenever they play it. And this is also, I feel like for 1996, this is the song that everybody wants to see because this is another one, once they hear that that intro, everybody just unloads. And because this was being played on the radio so much, it was just so highly requested. It kind of became the treat when it got the closer edition in 1995 and kind of fed off of that in this year and obviously years going past but this Mike solo between what the verses and the chorus are like he gets really it's inspiring vibrant way more electric and kind of hammer on heavy than blues heavy this was excellent know 
how often he's really gone for it on Ledbetter. At the end, that's where he'll pull out the trick. But in the middle of the song, it doesn't feel like we get this very often. Yeah, it felt like he took it upon himself to kind of give this crowd a a big moment at the end of the show. And I want to mention Brian again, who gave us a cool little thing that we didn't know. Like, he mentioned that everyone had kind of stopped playing and, like, Jack came out from behind the drums and sat down and Ed's like sitting on the stage kind of like kicking his legs. Everyone in the band came out and just sat on the stage and just watched Mike finish this thing off. Yeah, just an incredible solo. I felt like he had been waiting for this moment for the whole show almost. All right, that's the show, you guys. Now it's time to give our three stars of the night. I'm up first on this. I'm going to go number three. I'm going to say In My Tree. Anytime it's In My Tree in this era, it's right in the sweet spot. It brings you back to the original moment, brings you back to the original accompaniment. And it's that type of version that gives the song its true kind of rhythm, its true kind of heart. So yeah, that was a great moment. Number three for me. Number two is actually going to be led better. I loved how different it was. And I also kind of loved it just the crowd's reaction to it too because it made me think of all those things like we take it for granted a little bit now but back then it was so highly sought after and it was so appreciated where you know now it's almost a little bit divisive in a way where some people are just like yeah i never wanted to close the show again then there's some people that absolutely cannot live without it and i'm somewhere in the middle on all that but Back then, this was the song that had to close a Pearl Jam show. For something like this in this version, they really just went for it and made it become that moment. And number one is going to be Not For You, because that really kind of connected Ed with the crowd. It opened him up. We didn't get to see that a lot in prior years. He opens up a little bit more in 96, and then as the years and years go by, you start to get to learn about him as a human being, and I think this is part of it, too. So, yeah, the Not For You and the speech or Not For You was my favorite moment. Cool. Actually, I'm going to go my number three in my tree as well. And normally that would be number one, but this is a very good show. I got to go daughter number two with the embrace, no more pain tag. One of the things I've been looking forward to talking about for a long time. And my number one is actually long road from the show, starting it off very, very good with the dynamics and playing around with being quiet and, and the build of it. We talked about that a lot at the beginning of the show. So that's my number one. Let's get us into a rating of this one. All good things, all positive things. This show just has overall just a very positive vibe. And I think it's due to Ed and the band being at the top of their game for 1996. But I think it's also due to the crowd being on top of their game and kind of giving in what their role is and allowing for the band to kind of step it up. And those things are very important. And I'm sure in 1996, it was hard to get that out of most crowds. I don't think Fort Lauderdale was giving them that, that Columbia gave them in this show. I'm like in between two. I see this as very, very good. I'm not quite at a nine. I'm not quite there in a nine. I'm at an eight and a half with this, which is just very solid a show that I'll go back to a show I'll recommend to people. Okay. Yeah, I am going to give it the nine. There's enough here with the crowd on, you know, Not For You and Jeremy, and then later on Black and Better Man. I think with a really good bootleg, like with maybe a vault release on this, it might be a little more highly regarded. But yeah, great set list, good crowd, good show, cool ending. Overall, nine. And, you know, we never got to mention the sound check. 
That's right. Yeah. Very they, cool sound check. I'm uh, open. They did I'm open, which I wonder if they actually were doing the album version of it. Yeah. And the kids are all right is interesting too. Yeah. Ed Solo on Elderly Woman, which didn't really come into play at the time. And then just the opening riff of Rear Mirror. So, yeah. Very interesting stuff. Good show. Yeah. I wonder if he was working on us like a slow intro to it or kind of playing around with it to see if he could could mess with it. Yeah. That's cool. I guess that's kind of what it turned into on this night in a way because it was kind of that little teaser before evolving into it. But thanks, Brian, for this show. It was fun to listen to, fun to cover. And next week, well, we kind of called an audible. I won't say what we replaced because that might upset some people. But, I mean, we'll we'll end up doing it at some point. But we've kind of gone and done, you know, some other countries. We have to go back to when we did the Around the World in, in 2020. We did nearly every country there was. And, you know, we dabbled back in Germany, we've dabbled back in Brazil, we've dabbled back in, obviously, England and... Western Europe, yeah. Yeah, just kind of those spots, and Amsterdam, too. But we haven't gone back to Mexico. And that is kind of a travesty, because Mexico has all of these really underappreciated shows in their history. We've done two Mexico shows. We did one... A long time ago, you weren't even on this. This might be considered our worst episode of all time. (laughs) Mexico City in 2011. Literally, we decided to do the show because it was Thanksgiving week, and this was the only show that they had ever played on the Thanksgiving day. So we thought, okay, that would be a good way to tie in the holiday. As we figured out that week, as we were set to do our research... There was no official bootleg for this show. So it kind of threw things for a loop and it was not the episode that we wanted to give to you guys, but it was very, very early on. We weren't really giving you amazing stuff anyway, but also that is the only time we've covered Olay. I haven't dabbled back and looking. I can check in a second, but I don't think they're going to play Olay at this show, but we're going to do the... No. The 2015, not a, not a year we talk about a whole lot because, again, they only did South America and Mexico. They did the Global Citizens Festival right. as well. So we're going to Mexico City for 2015, which is highly regarded by the locals there. So I hope that they are excited for this and we're excited to dabble back in Mexico again. I have to brush up on my Spanish. I'm not because I don't have any. Yeah. So... There you have that, but we'll be relying on John for all of it. And hey, Ed does a decent job translating sometimes, so we'll see. We'll see what comes out of it. Thanks for listening to this one, everybody. If you enjoy the show, then help us out. There's other ways that you can help if you aren't going to join Patreon at this time. Feel free to head on over to wherever your podcast platform is that you listen on, either Apple, Spotify, just to name two. You can go in and you can give us a star rating on Spotify. That's all it is. You just give five stars or on Apple. You can also give us five stars because, you know, that would be the nice way to do it. But you can also leave a comment and let people know what you think about our show. If you guys say good things about our show, then somebody's going to see that. Somebody's going to get into it and they're going to be like, oh, okay. Well, if Dirty Frank 69 
says that this show is good, then I'm going to listen to Dirty Frank 69 because he sounds like a true fan. So if he says it, then I'm going to go do it. And that's just how this train keeps rolling. And and really, like we kind of mentioned in little pieces of the show, the best thing that we can do is kind of rekindle you with some of the memories that you might have experienced. And even if you don't have those memories, then hopefully we're teaching you something. Hopefully we're bringing something to light that you guys have never really put much thought into or, or even considered before. A big thank you to some of the, the people that have given us ratings lately. Jason Weiss is one of them. Setlist champion Jason Weiss, I should say. So thank you, Jason. I believe Zach Fields also left us a little comment on there. So Hey, all of it helps. All of it helps. People read, they look, they're looking for the perfect content. So if you guys want to help out in that manner, that's the best thing that you can do for our visibility. With all that being said, we are good for this week. We will see you next week. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. Mexico City. Yeah, hopefully we could have gone down to Mexico City. That would have been nice to actually cover the Mexico City show in Mexico City because, you know, could use a little vacation, but we'll just be in Connecticut and Georgia doing our own thing, giving it back to you like we always do. See you then. Your emotions are nothing but politics.